Welcome to Policy, Guns and Money, the ASPE podcast. I'm your host, Kelly Smith. In this episode, ASPE's Dr. Huang Li Thu speaks with Dr. Donald Greenlees from AsiaLink about COVID-19 in Indonesia, and I speak with Colonel Ned Holt of the US Army War College and get tips on how to survive and thrive living in social isolation. But first, Lisa Sharlin, head of ASPE's international program, spoke with Dr. Anna Poles, Senior Lecturer in Security Studies at Massey University, about the impacts of Cyclone Harold on the Pacific amid the challenges of COVID-19. Anna, welcome back to the ASPE podcast. Hi, Lisa. Thank you for having me back. I thought I'd start off our, our conversation today and ask you a little bit about how things are in New Zealand at the moment. As far as in terms of how things are in New Zealand, uh, we've been in in lockdown, um, alert level four, so national lockdown now for almost four weeks. Uh, and the numbers have been comparatively much lower than, than elsewhere, than overseas. I think at the moment, the total number of infections is around 1,400. Uh, and the numbers on sort of on a daily basis, I think today's number was around 15. So comparatively, we're incredibly lucky in terms of that, the low numbers that we've been experiencing here in New Zealand. No, I think I think a lot of countries are, are watching and waiting to see how that goes because I think it is a it's a promising um, development and certainly a sign I think of um, cautious optimism um, as we sort of move forward and, and countries look at how they're going to move forward from the um, COVID crisis at the moment. I guess one of the things that um, for the Pacific. I mean, first of all, they've they've had the impact of, of COVID-19 in the region, but also in early April, they've had Cyclone Harold rip through the region with a Category 5 um, designation, and that has brought with it destruction uh, and a number of challenges for, for a number of countries in, in, in dealing with the damage that's been caused. Can you give us a bit of a sense of, of what impact the cyclone has had on countries in the region that need, I guess, the attention of, of the international community at the moment. Certainly, Lisa. And so, as you said, uh, Cyclone Harold um, ripped through the region starting off in early April. It formed off the Solomon Islands, uh, made landfall in Vanuatu on the 6th of April and then moved through, um, decreased from, from Cat 5 to, to Category 4 and moved through Fiji and, and Tonga. Um, and it couldn't possibly sort of be happening at a worse time. I mean, in Vanuatu, the estimate is uh, around 90% of homes and infrastructure were damaged on um, Pentecost Island. Uh, in Fiji, approximately 10,000 people have needed immediate help. And then, of course, there's that longer-term assistance. Similarly, Tonga and the Solomon Islands have also needed significant, I mean, have needed assistance as well and need ongoing assistance. So it has had, a, a, as we know, with cyclones and with, you know, the vulnerability of Pacific states has had a real impact. Um, and this has obviously come at a time where countries, Pacific Island countries, have also been preparing and locking down for in the face of the COVID-19 pandemic as well. So you have these these two fronts um, occurring at one time, which is inc- which is incredibly concerning when you have a cyclone disrupting uh, you know supply chains, disrupting. Um, uh, efforts to combat the pandemic. I mean, as, as a number of, of, 
of commentators through the region have said, how do you do social distancing in an evacuation center, for example? Um, the impact on food security is going to be really significant long term. Uh, and so it's it really is almost kind of a perfect storm situation. For, for anyone watching at the moment, it's it's kind of horrifying to see this situation unfolding on the top of the COVID crisis. And as you've mentioned there, it is compounding, I think, the ability of the countries themselves to respond, but also attempt to keep the population um, safe from potential outbreaks, um, particularly, I guess, in places such as such as Fiji at the moment. I wanted to ask you a question about how this particular natural disaster is likely to impact women in the Pacific, uh, given not only the cyclone, but also the responses that are taking place at the moment to COVID-19? Well, we know, I mean, in a, in a number of ways, and I think, you know, much more attention needs to be paid to the implications for women in these situations. There has been considerable work done, you know, across NGOs, um, Oxfam and others have, re have released some really interesting um, reports around this. Uh, that we know that natural disasters impact women and girls significantly um, for a number of reasons. And we know that, for instance, uh, that this is also playing out in the context of a pandemic as well. So if you combine those two, then you have a situation where, where vulnerable groups and women and girls fall into these into this category where these the, this, this demographic is, is significantly impacted. And if you think for even just things around the impact on uh, tourism, which is obviously one of the biggest sources of, of, of employment in across the Pacific. In Fiji, for instance, they're estimating around 150,000 people will be unemployed um, within the tourism sector. And that equates to around 40% of Fiji's um, GDP, which is around, um, around uh, 1.4 billion um, Australian. Dollars, And so that's an enormous amount of people who are going to be unemployed. And of that, of course, um, a large proportion um, will be women as well. So you have that economic impact. Then you have the implications, as we've, we've heard a lot of commentary about this in New Zealand and Australia as well, um, the implications of lockdown on women's um, and safety as a consequence of domestic violence. And we have very high domestic rates of domestic violence in New Zealand and across the Pacific too and in Australia. So you have that that personal safety um, implications as well. And then, of course, too, the fact that in Fiji, like in other countries, so many women are on the front lines too, providing the healthcare um, services too. And so you have that double impact. And then, of course, with respect to food security, and food security is going to be one of those uh, a potential um, issue longer term, the implications for, for women with respect to that. So it is something that is at the forefront um, and hopefully at the forefront of everybody's thinking in terms of how to move forward. But what we also need to see, importantly, is women in key decision-making and policy-making roles across the region who bring that knowledge to to the table and who are part of that decision making and and that's incredibly important for how it impacts and how it plays out for all women. No, I think I think that's a particularly important point in terms of the response and ensuring that that engagement, of course, is is meaningful and in a position to influence the direction that um, I guess some of these uh, policies take to address that response. In your view, given you've done quite a bit of, of research and engagement in the Pacific, I guess in your view, what's your assessment of, of what types of assistance might be required uh, by other governments, by the private sector, by civil society when it comes to 
responding both to the cyclone that we've we've recently seen go through the region, but also as part of the COVID response at the moment? Well, I think, I mean, for a start, I think it's really important to start off with the fact that the Pacific countries are incredibly resilient uh, and they've proven that over and over again. Um, and that should be the starting point, I believe, for every conversation is that there is enormous amount of resilience across the Pacific within communities and, and countries. There's an, an awful lot of knowledge already there um, that we need to be, those of us who are outside thinking about what we can do to help, we need to be tapping into that knowledge that's already there. So establishing that as a starting point, first of all, already enormous resilience and considerable knowledge there to start with. Now, in terms of how the kind of assistance, well, we're already seeing some of that already. And in terms of the financial assistance that has already been given, you know, for example, um, Australia has 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 given around 10 million, 10 million to, to Fiji um, uh, as financial support, uh, around 1.5 million to, to the Ministry of Fijians and the Ministry of Health, and then an additional amount uh, to the um, Fijian military as well to support their assistance. Uh, and we also see that um, coming from from the UN's uh, Emergency Response Fund, and they've released around 2.5 million uh, to Vanuatu, for example. So that financial assistance is obviously going to be really, really important long term because, as I mentioned, it's been a double whammy with um, the Cyclone Harold and and COVID-19, um, and the impact on the tourism sector, the impact on on um, the Pacific um, labour mobility schemes. For instance, all those are going to have long-term economic impacts, and so that long-term financial assistance uh, to support local businesses, to support the local private sector, is going to be fundamental. But I think also a key part of this too is um, stronger coordination, as well, um, more support to um, strengthening as much support as possible through the Pacific Islands Forum. Um, as the key body, and as we saw uh, last week, uh, they've announced the Pacific Humanitarian Pathway um, and invoked the Bikitawa Declaration to support that as a mechanism for crisis response. So providing that support is going to, that ongoing support is really critical. But the challenge here is that a protracted pandemic uh, scenario and plus um, coupled with the Cyclone Harold and any other potential um, disaster that we might see um, in the future is going to prove a challenge. And this has been a, long, a long-term fear for Australia and New Zealand particularly, where um, they have been concerned about a, a situation where disasters simultaneously occur um, on both the home front, sort of domestically in Australia and New Zealand, and in the Pacific. And how do you balance those domestic needs with those of um, of our Pacific family, of our Pacific neighbours. So there's a real tension there as well, and we're likely going to see that play out over the next year. I think that's a particularly key point, and and one no doubt that policymakers and government officials in Canberra and Wellington are, are grappling with the moment. Um, but as you say, it's a it's a resilient region, and and one that uh, of course we need to listen to in shaping any of our our responses to this double whammy of crises at the moment. Anna, thank you so much for joining us today and, and sharing some of your perspectives on, on developments we're seeing in the Pacific at the moment. Thank you so much, Lita, for having me. Earlier this week, I sat down with Colonel Ned Holt, Aspie's US Army War College Fellow, to discuss his experience on deployment surviving isolation. So I'm, I'm joined here today with Colonel Ned Holt. Uh, he's a colonel in the US Army. Ned, thank you for joining us today. 
Oh, thank you very much. It's my pleasure to be here. I appreciate it. We thought we'd um, have you on the podcast uh, to hear from you about what we can do to survive isolation. We're here at Aspie in our, what what is it, four weeks of working from home. Uh, and I think it's getting to us a little bit. And um, no doubt you have many experiences from your time with the army in being isolated and being on deployment. Um, what, are, what are some of your experiences with this? Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it for having me be here today. Um, so I've been deployed four times for a total of two and a half years. Um, I've got six months in Bosnia, a year in Iraq, six months in Afghanistan, and then six months in Kuwait, plus a, a number of one or two month deployments for training exercises where I was socially isolated. So in each one of these experiences, which have happened over the last 18 years, I've ha- had to learn a couple of things about myself. And about how to, you know, how to basically be socially isolated on a regular basis. No doubt, you would have learnt how to deal with this in a way that we, as you know, I've never deployed. I've never had to be socially isolated. This is all new for me. Are there any tips or tricks or pointers of things to do or things not to do while we're in this situation? Oh, there, there definitely are. First, I would just tell everybody that number one, it's going to be okay. You're going to make it out of here alive. Just trust in yourself, and then develop the habits and routines that will allow you to one survive your time here while we're in quarantine, and then two, be able to come out just as strong or if not stronger when the quarantine is over, or we'd say when the deployment's over, you want to be in just as good a shape, if not better shape. You want to have your personal life in, in, in order, and you want to feel comfortable about yourself and how you handle yourself. Okay, so what I, what I want to talk about now is some things that have worked for me and what has not worked for me, and I'll tell you why it hasn't worked for me. And then and not only just for me, but for my friends and compatriots and, and the people that I have also mentored and helped while I was deployed. My number one tip would be, one, you have to have a daily routine. You've got to stick to your daily things. I, I think one of my favorite quotes is by Adam McRaven. He's the former Special Operations Command commander. He's also the guy that helped get bin Laden. When he was in you know, the middle of the wars, he'd say, the best thing you can do is make your bed every day. Because there's a lot of things you can't control, but you can definitely control yourself in making your bed. Now, granted, he was going to go, he'd get out of bed and then he'd work for 18 punishing hours every day and he'd come back to his, his, his bed and go to sleep. But it starts from there. Personally, for myself, I have about, and I know this is kind of, you're going to say it's crazy, but I have about 15 things I force myself to do before nine o'clock. I get out of bed, I make my bed, I brush my teeth, I feed my cat, I take care of the cat litter, I make coffee, I'll get the paper, I exercise, I meditate, I write in my journal. I make my breakfast, then I clean up after myself every day. So it, by nine o'clock, I've exercised, I've meditated, I've eaten, I've cleaned, the cat's fed, the cat's taken care of, but everything in my life that has to happen that day is done by nine o'clock. And what that does is, and I know you're thinking, well, what do you do for the rest of the day? Well, that's a good question. But what that does is it, it starts me out on a positive day where I've, got, I've taken care of a lot of things and I've taken care of myself and, and everything around me. So th- that is my number one tip that I would say. The other thing I would say is, again, it's going to be okay. We're going to come out of this better off. I, I, I told the interns this earlier, and I also, also tell my, my officers, if, if you're feeling depression and if you're feeling down on yourself, it's okay to talk to a mental health professional. I myself have talked to a mental health professional twice, once you know, while I was in, you know, in sane combat in Iraq, and the other time was after in my last deployment where I actually wasn't in combat. I was just socially isolated and working such punishing hours that I... I need a little help, and that is not a um, that is not admission of defeat, or you know, there's something wrong with you. That actually makes you a stronger, better person by seeing a professional. So that's my second thing. And then I, I'm going to segue from that into a couple of things that have helped for me personally. 
I always want to make goals with my life, what I want to do. And, you know, I want to be stronger, faster, better, smarter. What works is things that I know I can continue when I'm done and things that make me feel better than I like and then make me a better person. And, and I'll use for an example, on my first deployment in 2002, when I was in Bosnia, I, I continued my master's program because I loved it and it was making me better. And so I, I started reading a lot. And also I started journaling. I, I wrote in my journal every day. So for the last 18 years, I've written a journal every day. It's a habit I started on a deployment and it's a habit that stuck with me because I like it. And that was my personal and professional. And then and another thing I love to do is I love to exercise. But I, at that point, I was young. I didn't really have a good routine. I started running a lot and I, I started getting into a really good running habit. Um, and I started doing all my long runs were on Sunday. My easy runs were on Tuesday. And I had a nice, I, I built a nice rhythm and a routine with myself that stayed with me for 18 years. Those are things that have definitely worked for me. Things that, one, that make me feel better and, and are better for me, make me a better person or more, more relaxed, stronger, better, but they've stuck with me. And then a few other things I'd say that have worked for me are, I love, to, I, one, I've got a little back pain because I broke my back jumping out of an out of airplane, but I love the stretch. So now I stretch in the morning and then I meditate in the morning and then I read in the morning. So, but usually my day is a little more regimented than most people. I'm at work by 7.30, 8 o'clock, but by 7.30, 8 o'clock in the morning, I've exercised, I've meditated, I've read, I've stretched, and, I, and I'm in really good shape. So when I go to work, I'm good. Well, I'm just continuing to do the same things here during the quarantine. But more importantly, I started these routines and habits during a deployment. And it, it, they continued on with me for years because I really they really work for me. Now, I'll tell you some things that don't work for me. And, and most people, they don't work for. If you set a certain goal, like I want to do something, like I want to lose a certain amount of weight, or I want to write a paper, or I want to read a book, that doesn't work because it's not something that makes you... One, it's not sustainable. If you just say, I want to lose 10 kilograms, well, you're going to lose 10 kilograms, then more than likely what's going to happen, you're going to gain that weight back after the deployment's over. I try to advise people to stay away from weight loss or ex excess ex inner, um, exercising. Or my favorite thing for me is I thought I wanted to learn how to play the harmonica. I thought I did. I took my harmonica with me to four different deployments. I never, ever, ever picked my harmonica because it's not something I really wanted to do. I just thought it'd be a great idea. So finally, after my last deployment, I threw my harmonica and my CDs away. So those are some tips and techniques that I think that have worked for me. One is do something that makes you feel better and makes you a better person. But don't go for a, a certain goal, like I want to lose weight or I want to do this, because it'll eventually fall back on you. I think that's really important to know what goals will help you and what goals will just sort of add that mental pressure and anxiety to I'm not achieving enough. You know, I'm reading online. I should be writing the next King Lear or I should be running a marathon. And and they're not things that I'm either interested in or, or have time to do. You know, we're still working from home full time. Uh, th there isn't a whole lot more hours in the day where I can do these things. So finding something that I can concentrate on that actually adds to my mental health, gives me a, more of a routine, are things that I, I think are really helpful to focus on. When you start a deployment, you're in a different headspace to in the middle of the deployment to when you're returning to normal. What are sort of the stages in your experience that, that you go through? So I see three big, three major phases. There's stage or phases, stages. Phase one is, is kind of your norming and forming. When you're starting to accept this, the, the reality of the fact that you now you're socially quarantined and you're isolated and you, you can't control yourself anymore. You can't drink alcohol. You can't see your significant other. You just can't take a break whenever you want to. 
some some other external event or actor is controlling your schedule. And that's usually the first month, two to three weeks to month, depending on how, you know, the, how long the deployment is, the maturity of, of the person. But that's actually, that is the very hardest because again, you've got, you're like a tiger that's been put in a cave. And for people from, you know, Americans, Australians, Brits, uh, Europeans, Asians, we're, we're, it's advanced first world democracies. We're not used to that. We're, we're used to be able to come and go as we please. So that's a very hard thing for us to get used to. And there are, you know, your emotions go up and down. Your, your productivity level goes up and down. So I, I think that's actually the hardest. Now, for me personally, I think we've already transitioned into, into phase two, which is it's a steady state operation. This is the, but this, this is not harder or easier than anything else, but it is the one where you actually learn the most about yourself. Because at this point, you realize that one, that somebody else is controlling your schedule, that you can't do everything you want to do. And you're, you're in this for the long haul, long haul. I'm sorry. You don't see the end. Uh, you know, it's, you know, there is going to be an end, but you can't see it. It happened to me about month two and a half when I was in a one year deployment in Iraq. It took me a while to get to that stage because it was such a, a long deployment. But I think myself, I think we're in, st- I'm in stage two. and I think most people have stage two. The good thing about stage two is also you develop a daily routine for yourself or you're close to a daily routine, whether it's exercise in the morning, exercise at night. It's, you know, when you eat, when you read, you pretty much have a nice, good routine. The hard part about this is just maintaining it and learning to learning to one to see yourself in space and time when realize that, hey, maybe I'm pushing myself too much. Maybe I'm not pushing myself enough. You've got to learn how to do that self-modulate. Um, and it's, it's really hard when you're by yourself when there's nobody to kind of like your partner or your family to help you out and say, Hey, you're kind of burning out. Uh, the great thing about being when you're deployed is when we have this issue, when you, you can see somebody is starting to burn themselves out and you just, you take them off the line and you're, Hey, you need to take a break. You need some time off. So that's stage two. Stage three is when you can see the end when, you know, we you can see the barn, you know, the horse, the cows are coming home. Like I'm going to, I'm almost there. It is the, it is the, by far the most dangerous phase because you b- develop these great routines and habits and then you start to see the end and you're like oh thank god this constriction is going to come off me i'm going to get out of prison soon i'm going to get to drink alcohol as much as i want i can go see my partners and my buddies i can go to the bar i can do whatever i can, you know i can do whatever i want to do um and you start to lose focus on what's important and what's not so uh, i think you know stage one is the hardest stage two is the one you learn the most about yourself and there are stage, you know, stage three, phase three is the most dangerous because you, you take your eye off the prize. I think, um, especially in the situation we're in now, we're, we're not sure when that end date will be. I, I think that that third phase is really important to consider. Uh, I know for, for myself, not focusing on a specific, this is the day that I will return to normal. Um, and even if we do return to normal, we don't know that it will be exactly as it was before. It might be a staged approach. So, I think that's really important to focus on the routine and being in phase two and finding um, a, a good balance with yourself and learning a lot about yourself in that routine and not putting a, an end date on it. Would that be a healthy approach? Absolutely. And that's, that's kind of the way I look at it. You know, I think that's a very good way to, to kind of roll it up and encapsulate it. Ned, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. I know for myself, uh, about a month in, I'm definitely in that phase two, setting myself up with a routine and 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 focusing on the day to day. I hope you're uh, implementing your routine and surviving uh, and thriving. Um, and and thank you so much for your time today. 
Hey, no problem, Kelly. Thanks so much for you know allowing me this opportunity. This is a great. This is something we kind of do normally in the military as we mentor our our, our subordinates. Or we're getting mentored by our, the our higher officers. Um, it's a it's a thing you do just to, to take care of each other and to help each other out. Uh, I think one of the great things about the military is the tribal learning. You know, it's about passing this knowledge down to the next generation or somebody else in the situation to let you know that one, you're not alone. Someone's done this before. And most importantly, number three, it's going to be okay. We're going to come out of this together all right and just helping you, helping everybody survive this together. But thank you so much. Dr. Huang Li Thu is a senior analyst with ASPE's Defense and Strategy Program, an expert in Asian regional security. This week, she talked to Dr. Donald Greenlees, a senior advisor with AsiaLink, about Indonesia and COVID-19. Hello, my name is Dr. Huang Li Thu from ASPE. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Donald Greenlees. Yeah, thank you, Hong, and uh, thank you very much for the invitation to join you today. I'm uh, here speaking uh, as a senior advisor to AsiaLink at the University of Melbourne and as a visiting fellow at the Strategic and Defence Studies Centre of the ANU, although, of course, the views that I express today are purely uh, personal views. They don't represent the views of my organisation. Don and I today are talking about the situation evolving in uh, Indonesia with the pandemic of COVID-19. Don, so the situation has been looking really grim uh, so far. Uh, for a long time, Indonesia had denied that there are any cases until early March. There are only few reported. But since then, the number has really skyrocketed. And by now, Indonesia has the highest uh, death rates uh, in the region. And the real worry of ours is that it's really only a tip. There might be much more uh, that goes either unrecognized or unreported. What worries you the most? Well, Hong, uh, I think you uh, hit the nail on the head when you said uh, this was the tip of the iceberg. To be honest, I no longer pay much attention to the daily official figures because I think they so far underestimate the reality of the situation that Indonesia confronts today, that those official figures really are next to worthless, I think, from the point of view of serious analysis. Just to encapsulate uh, at the moment, as of the 16th of April, Indonesia had officially recorded 5,136 positive cases of COVID-19 and 469 deaths. But that has to be seen in the context that Indonesia has one of the worst testing regimes in the world. Uh, it tests 36 people per million. That puts it in the, uh, in the same league, more or less, as Ethiopia, Bangladesh and Nigeria. So Indonesia faces, I think, huge challenges in even identifying the scale of the problem that it confronts. Uh, various private organisations and even government organisations are using rough assessments, rough internal assessments, based in large part on anecdotal evidence and uh, the range of people presenting symptoms at various clinics. And the numbers that they're producing are really very, very concerning. Um, we're talking numbers already potentially in the low hundreds of thousands, certainly in the tens of thousands. As you mentioned, Indonesia took some time before it uh, officially acknowledged the existence of COVID-19 infections in the country. In fact, it was on the 2nd of March that uh, the president announced that uh, there were two confirmed cases in uh, Jakarta. I think we can be reasonably confident that the virus entered Indonesia much, much earlier than that because there were a large number 
of Chinese visitors coming into Indonesia, including from the original source of the epidemic in Wuhan. So the virus has been able to embed itself very strongly within Indonesia and uh, the expectations are that it's going to get much worse from here. We're a long, long way from the peak of infections in Indonesia right now. Yes, and in many ways, Indonesia is very badly equipped to deal with any health crisis, um, particularly such a a big-scale pandemic like the COVID-19. I think it's been uh, uh, chronically under-investing in the health system. Um, I think also the distribution of hospitals that are capable, have uh, suitable equipment, are very only few in big cities, um, and that leaves a vast population that is not situated in those cities. And like you said, in, in terms of testing, Indonesia's testing numbers in total is, is lower than Singapore that has only over 5 million people. Now we just had some government has started to respond with some measures, including creating some task force. Just on the 13th of March, President Jokowi declared that this is uh, a non-natural disaster and and giving some uh, authority to a new um, task force. Uh, But a lot of people still complain and still think it's too too little and too late. The government had either minimized uh, the access to information or even playing down the scale of pandemic or a fear of public public panic, as well as to protect um, economic interests of people. Uh, can we really you know, protect the economic interests of people and really minimise uh, the economic costs? Yeah, well, you're asking uh, two questions there, Huang, and I think if I address the, the first part of uh, the question and then come to some of the economic issues. Um, in the first instance, I think uh, we all have to have uh, great sympathy for the experience that Indonesia is going through at the moment and great sympathy particularly for the the people of Indonesia. Um, I've worked in Indonesia on and off uh, for many years and it's been a focus of long-standing interest in terms of my research work. Um, I have many friends there and uh, I think we all feel uh, great sadness at the the experience they're going through at the moment. I think uh, in terms of the health system and the ability of the health system to respond to a crisis such as this, we have to accept that Indonesia is a developing economy and it has a health system that you would expect to see in a developing economy. And so I don't necessarily find fault with the work of the doctors. We've seen some very courageous people working on the front line in the medical system and a number of uh, medical personnel have lost their lives, as they have been, uh, as they have in other countries, are trying to contain uh, this pandemic and to help people. Uh, the, the the question that I have, or the, the issue that I want to focus on really, is not so much Indonesia's ability to manage the crisis. It's the bigger question of why weren't more countries out there um, helping less able countries to deal with this sort of situation long ago. Epidemiologists, virologists have been calling for urgent action going back to the early 2000s. And they were warning us for 20 odd years about just such uh, an event as this. And I think there was ample opportunity for countries to come together and uh, to prepare and for wealthier countries in the spirit of burden sharing to do a lot more to help less able countries. And so I think part of the tragedy here 
is that we had a lot of time, we had a lot of warning, we had the resources to make a difference, and we failed to do so. So I think at a time when um, foreign aid often comes under scrutiny in budget processes, and I believe that was part of the budget process being planned this year prior to the outbreak of COVID-19, you know, we can often see uh, foreign aid, particularly foreign aid of this kind, as being an insurance policy. And it's very much in our interests to, uh, to support that and engage in it. So there are plenty of reasons to criticise Indonesia and to criticise their lack of preparedness. And there is no question that the health minister, Minister Terawan, um, had uh, uh, demonstrably failed in the early part of this process by not preparing and alerting the country to the prospect that COVID-19 would enter Indonesia. Um, and I think we need to highlight those internal failings, but they, those internal failings have to be seen in the context of the much bigger failing that all of us in the region must take responsibility for. The critical issue here um, facing um, all countries in the region, how do you simultaneously manage the health security threat alongside the threat to um, employment security, economic security? And it's a balancing act. It's a very complex balancing act. And there are no right answers in relation to this. And every country has to manage it on its own terms because they have different capacities. Um, Indonesia has stepped in with um, a relatively large stimulus, but the country does not have the economic capacity to be able to stimulate the economy and provide income protection to anywhere near the degree that uh, countries like of, of Europe and North America and uh, and, and Australia uh, have been able to do so. That is a, that's an acute um, challenge. Um, there are logistical difficulties in getting support out to people, even when the stimulus packages have been made available. And in percentage terms, as a percentage of GDP, um, the stimulus packages have been pretty generous. But getting the support out to people is absolutely vital, and then being able to set the economy up for recovery. Um, is absolutely vital as well. And, of course, the longer it takes to get money into people's pockets, the longer it takes to put food on people's tables, and the longer it takes to rebuild the economy, obviously the greater the risk of social um, and civil unrest and also the risk of certain bad actors, if you like, exploiting that sentiment, that those grievances in the community acting as brokers and causing um, a much wider challenge to the government. So these things are very much uh, intertwined. And uh, I would say at the moment the government has somewhat unrealistic expectations of how quickly the economy will bounce back and how badly the economy will be affected by COVID-19. Um, the range of uh, estimates that I've seen are that uh, it go, could go from a contraction of as little as 0.4% to uh, growth of 2.3% this year. And the government saying it may even bounce back to 4.5% to 5.2% growth next year. I think those numbers um, are uh, very ambitious and uh, I, I certainly hope that they turn out to be true, but I think the evidence suggests that the economic impact will be much greater than they're anticipating. Now, to come to your second question, what does this mean for social stability? Indonesians have an enormous um, tolerance and enormous resilience. Uh, there's a history of communities pulling together and supporting one another in the absence of government support. And I think we can count on that working quite effectively to ensure 
that basic needs continue to be met, that I, I don't think we're going to see starvation. I don't think we're going to see, you know, hardship of, uh, any, of anywhere near that scale. But there will be considerable hardship. And anecdotally, I know of people who've run out of food at home and don't have the money to buy it. And so they're turning into, they're turning back to community networks uh, for support. So very important for government to get that money out to people and get food out to people. If that were to drag on for any extended period of time, I think you'll see two things, an increase in uh, common crime, and already we're seeing that. Uh, that crime could become increasingly violent in nature. It could uh, target vulnerable ethnic groups, and by that I mean the Indonesian Chinese, and it could, it could target some expatriates as well. Um, uh, and then it could go beyond that common crime to something somewhat more organised and you might see some significant protest actions against the government. I don't think at the moment we're in it at anywhere close to a 1998 scenario. I, I was in Jakarta in 1998. I was on the streets. I covered that uh, those riots um, and we are in a very different set of circumstances to 1998. But it is still something for the authorities to be very vigilant about. That's right. Uh, the pandemic crosses borders and we should not be treating an outbreak as only domestic. This is a novel virus that we still don't know much about. There's a lot uh, yet to unfold as the virus and pandemic still is going on uh, across the world. Thank you very much for the conversation, Wong. No, my pleasure, Wong. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Policy, Guns and Money. We hope you've settled into your routine in what Colonel Holt refers to as phase two of isolation. We would love to know your tips and tricks for thriving in isolation, so tweet us at ASTI underscore org. This week, we also held our very first virtual roundtable on ICTs and emerging technologies in the Pacific. If you missed that, you'll be able to find the recording plus many other videos on our ASPE YouTube channel. Our link is below. We'll catch you next week.